Chapter 11 of The Story of a Whim by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter 11 A Daring Maneuver. Hazel caught her breath when she heard of Christie's prayer, and a bright flush glowed on her cheek. Then he taught the lesson, Victoria continued. And he did it well. Those little children never stirred, they were so interested. Just as they were singing the closing hymn, I left in a hurry so they wouldn't see me. Victoria had timed her story from the window. She knew the carriage had returned and that Mother Winship would soon appear at the doorway. Hazel would have no chance to speak until she thought about the Sunday school a little while. The footsteps were coming along the hall now, and she could hear Ruth calling to Hazel's brother. She had one more thing to say. Stepping over close to the couch, she whispered in Hazel's ear, Hazel, I don't believe he's deceived you about everything. I believe you've done him a great deal of good. Don't fret about it, dear. Hazel was brighter that evening, and Victoria often caught her looking thoughtfully at her. The next day, when they were left alone, she said, Tell me what sort of lesson they had at the Sunday school, Vic, dear. Victoria launched into a full account of the chalkboard lesson and the odd-shaped little cards, which she couldn't quite see through the crack that were passed around at the close and treasured she could see. Then cautiously she told of the interview with Mr. Mortimer and his account of Christie's throwing the bottles out the door. The story lost none of its color from Victoria's repetition of it. When she finished, Hazel's eyes were bright, and she was sitting up and smiling. Wasn't that splendid, Vic? she said, and then remembering sank back thoughtfully upon the couch. Victoria was glad the others came in just then and she could slip away. She had said all she wished to say at present and would let things rest now until Saturday evening when Christie came. Victoria had arranged with Mrs. Winship to stay upstairs and have dinner with Hazel on Saturday evening while the family with Ruth Summers went down to the dining room. She also arranged with the head waiter to send up Hazel's dinner early, and so with much maneuvering the coast was clear at seven. Hazel's dinner and her own disposed of, and the family just gone down to the dining room, where they would be safe for at least an hour. It was no part of Victoria's plan that Mother Winship or Tom or the judge should come in at an inopportune moment and complicate matters, until Hazel had had everything fully explained to her. After that, Victoria felt that she would wash her hands of the whole thing. Mother Winship had just rustled down the hall, and Victoria, who was standing by the hall door waiting until she was gone, walked over to where Hazel sat in a big soft chair by an open fire of pine knots. Hazel, she said in her matter-of-fact everyday tone, Christy Bailey has come to find out if he may see you for a few minutes. He wants to say a few words of explanation to you. He's really suffered very much and perhaps you'll feel less humiliated by this whole thing if you let him explain. Do you feel able to see him now? Hazel looked up, a bright flush on her cheeks. Victoria did not betray by so much as the flicker of an eyelash that she was anxious about the outcome of this simple proposal. Hazel's clear eyes searched her face, and she bore the scrutiny well. Then Hazel sighed a troubled little breath and said, Yes, I'll see him, Vic. I feel quite strong tonight, and I guess it will be better, after all, for me to see him. Then Victoria felt sure it was a relief for him to come, and that Hazel had been longing for it for several days. 
Christy walked in solemnly with the tread of one who entered a sacred place, and yet with the quiet dignity of a gentleman unafraid. Indeed, so far had the object of his visit dominated him that he forgot to shrink from contact with the fashionable world from which he had been so entirely shut away for so long. He was going to see Hazel. It was the opportunity of his life. As to what came after, it didn't matter, now that the great privilege of entering her presence had been accorded him. He hadn't permitted himself to believe she would see him, even after he sent up his card as directed to Miss Landis. Victoria shut the door gently behind him and left them together. She had prepared a chair not far away, where she might sit and guard the door against intrusion. So she sat and listened to the faraway hum of voices in the dining room, the tinkle of silver and glass, and the occasional burst from the orchestra in the balcony above the dining room. But her heart stood still outside the closed door and wondered whether she had done well or ill, and she feared, now that she had done it, all evil things that can pass in review at such a time for judgment on one's own deeds. Christy stood still before Hazel, the sight of her so thin and white, changed even from a week ago, startled him, condemned him again, took away his power of speech for the moment. She was dressed in soft white cashmere, with delicate lace that fell over the little white wrists like petals of a flower. Her silken brown hair made a halo for her face and was drawn simply and carelessly together at the back. Christy had never seen anyone half so lovely. He caught his breath in admiration of her. For one long minute they looked at each other. Then Hazel, who felt it hers to speak first, since she had silenced him before, said, as a young queen might have said, with just the shadow of a smile flickering over her face, You may sit down. The gracious permission, with a slight indication of the chair facing her own by the fire, broke the spell that bound Christie's tongue. With a heart beating high over what he came to say, he began. The words he spoke were not the carefully planned words he had arranged to set before her. They had fled and left his soul bare before her gaze. He had nothing to tell but the story of himself. You think I've deceived you? he said, speaking rapidly, because his heart was beating in great quick bounds. Because I owe to you all the good I have in life, I've come to tell you the whole truth about myself. I thank you for giving me a few minutes to speak to you, and I'll try not to weary you. I've been too much trouble to you already. I was a little boy when my mother died. Christy lowered his head as he talked now, and the firelight played fanciful lights and shades with the richness of his hair. Nobody loved me that I know of, unless it was my father. If he did, he never showed it. He was a silent man, and grieved about my mother's death. I was a homely little fellow, and they've always said I had the temper of my hair. My aunt used to say I was hard to manage. I think that was true. I must have had some love in my heart, but nothing but my mother ever brought it out. I went through school at war with all my teachers. I got through because I naturally liked books. Father wanted me to be a farmer, but I wanted to go to college, so he gave me a certain sum of money and sent me. I used the money as I pleased, sometimes wisely and sometimes unwisely. When I ran out of money, I earned some more or went without it. Father was not the kind of man to be asked for more. I had a good time in college, though I can't say I ranked as well as I might have. I studied what I pleased and left other things alone. Father died before I graduated and the aunt who kept house for him soon followed. 
When I was through college, I had no one to go to and no one to care where I went. Father signed a note for a man a little while before he died, with the usual result of such things, and there was very little remaining for him to leave to me. What there was I took and came to Florida. I had a reckless longing to see a new part of the world and make a spot for myself. I'd never known what home was since I was a little fellow, and I believe I was homesick for a home and something to call my own. Land was cheap, and it was easy to work, I thought, and my head was filled with dreams of my future, but I soon saw that oranges didn't grow in a day and produce fortunes. Life was an awfully empty thing. Sometimes I used to lie awake at night and wonder what death would be, and if it wouldn't be as well to try it. But something in my mother's prayer for me when I was almost a baby always kept me from it. She used to pray, God, make my little Chris a good man. After a while I got acquainted with a lot of other fellows in the same fix with me. They were sick of life, at least the life down here, and hard work and interminable waiting. But they'd found something more pleasant than death to make them forget. I went with them and tried their way. They played cards. I played too. I could play well. We would drink and drink and play and drink again. A little moan escaped from the listener, and Christy looked up to find her eyes filled with tears and her fingers clutching the arms of the chair until the nails were pink against the fingertips with the pressure. Oh, I'm doing you more harm, exclaimed Christy. I'll stop. No, no, said Hazel. Go on, please. She turned her face aside to brush away the tears that had gathered. I was always ashamed when it was over. It made me hate myself and life all the more. I often used to acknowledge to myself that I was doing about as much as I could to see that my mother's prayers didn't get answered. But still, I went on just the same way every so often. There didn't seem to be anything else to do. Then the night before Christmas came, it wasn't anything to me more than any other day. It hadn't been since I was a baby. Mother used to fill my stocking with little things. I remember it just once. But this Christmas I felt particularly down. The orange trees weren't doing as well as I'd hoped. I was depressed by the horror of the monotony of my life, behind and before. Then your things came, and a new world opened before me. I wasn't very glad of it at first. I'm afraid I resented your kindness a little. Then I began to see they'd brought something homelike with them, and I couldn't help liking it. But your letter gave me a strange feeling. There seemed to be obligations I couldn't fulfill. I didn't like to keep the things because you wanted a Sunday school. I was much more likely to conduct a saloon or a pool room at that time than a Sunday school. Then I hung that picture up. You know what effect it had on me. I've told you about my strange dream or vision or whatever it was. Yes, it was all true. I never deceived you about that or anything else except that I didn't tell you I wasn't what you supposed. I thought it might embarrass you if I did so at first, and then it seemed only a joke to answer you as if I were a girl. I never dreamed it would go beyond that first letter when I wrote thanking you. His honest eyes were on her face, and Hazel couldn't doubt him. And then, when the writing went on, and the time came when I should have told you, something held me back. Forgive me for speaking of it, but I'm trying to be perfectly true tonight. You remember in that second letter that you wrote me, where you told me that you were praying for me, and you. Christy caught his breath and murmured the words low and reverently. You said you loved me. Oh, gasped Hazel, clasping her hands over her face, 
while the blood rushed up to her temples. End of chapter 11